You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40, we're continuing our series through the book of Job called When the Righteous Suffer. And this is going to be the second last sermon that we have in this series. We will complete this series next Sunday. And I've heard from a few of you that you don't want this series to end uh, because you're going through a particularly hard time. And God in his providence has given us this book in the Bible to help us to persevere and to endure and to continue to trust the Lord through our various trials. Um, But this is where the book of Job ends and we believe that the rest of scripture will also help us as we journey through this life together. Today we come to the Lord's second reply to Job and to what you could call the climax of the entire book. If you've read Job before, whether through a Bible reading plan or out of your own interest, you may have found the ending to be somewhat disappointing. That has certainly been my experience in the past, and it is because it doesn't give us what we might have expected or wanted for the ending of this book. Instead of giving us answers, the book of Job gives us animals. Animals. We saw a couple weeks ago that it gives us mountain goats and donkeys and ostriches and eagles. And today it's going to give us two additional mysterious creatures called behemoth and leviathan. And the question is, what do they have to do with anything? And how do they help us to endure through suffering? We want answers, but God gives us animals. It's a marked departure from most of the book, which has often resembled the kind of ancient philosophy textbook on suffering. It has explored fundamental questions like why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Who is responsible for evil in this world? And how do we find meaning in our suffering? Job and his friends have debated the answers to these questions for over 30 chapters without providing us with a definitive answer. But now as God enters the scene and he speaks authoritatively, we want him to set the record straight. We're ready for God to reveal the definitive answers to the questions we've been asking all along. But God doesn't do that. Because the book of Job isn't a book of philosophy that leads us to answers. The book of Job is a book of theology that leads us to worship. And that is what we need, especially when we suffer. We, we don't need more answers. We actually need more of God himself. God's answer to our suffering is himself. And that requires us to know who he truly is and who we truly are. Derek Kidner writes this of God's reply to Job. He says, it cuts us down to size. 
treating us not as philosophers, but as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. We may reflect that if instead of this, we were offered a defense of our creator's ways for our approval, it would imply that he was accountable to us, not we to him. That is an important insight in one of the most important lessons of the book of Job. Job has questioned God as if God were on the witness stand. But God reveals that Job is actually the one on the witness stand, being questioned by God himself. We cannot approach God as philosophers or as prosecuting attorneys. We must approach God as children. That is what Jesus meant when he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there's nothing wrong with seeking answers of applying our intellectual capacities to reason and to seek knowledge. That's part of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But as we seek answers, we must not depend on those answers to determine whether we are going to trust God when life gets hard. We must trust the Lord even when the answers are unknown to us or they don't seem to make sense. So the title of this sermon is God's Answer to Our Suffering. God's Answer to Our Suffering. We're going to divide our text into three points. First, God's challenge. Second, God's power. And third, God's servant. Now, God's second speech begins in chapter 40, verse 6. And it begins in the same way as the first speech. God is still speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. He doesn't speak in this silent voice in his heart. He doesn't speak out of the heavens. He speaks out of a physical, catastrophic force of nature that could consume Job in a moment. But it doesn't. Because God wants Job to be reminded of both God's majesty and God's mercy. The Lord calls Job in verse 7 to dress for action like a man. He is to man up because the almighty maker of the heavens and the earth is summoning him to be questioned. God says, I will question you and you make it known to me. God's first question for Job is an alarming one. Verse 8, will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That is what Job has done here. Throughout his discussions with his three friends, he has condemned God in order to vindicate himself. If Job had to choose between God's innocence or his innocence, he would choose his own. And isn't that true of us at times? We would rather charge God with wrong than accuse ourselves. The job that we wanted and that we prayed for and that we waited for and that we finally got doesn't work out as we planned. Or the relationship that we entered doesn't unfold the way that we want it. And we think, hey, I did everything right. 
I prayed about it. I sought counsel, and, and I got people's advice, but it still went all wrong. This is on God, not me. When we have moments like that, we must hear God summoning us to stand before him and to answer the question, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God is challenging us to consider who God is and who we are. He is holy. We are sinful. He is faithful. We are faithless. He is wise. We are foolish. He is love and we are selfish. If that is who God is and if that is who we are, then who are we to condemn God or to accuse him of wrong? We need to have a healthier trust in the character of God and a healthier mistrust in the character of man. If we are going to be quick to accuse anyone of wrongdoing, it should be ourselves, not God. Not other people, ourselves. Because as the book of Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God's challenge to Job continues in verse nine. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? What a fitting verse, especially in light of yesterday's thunderstorm. My kids were busy playing in the basement and I heard the thunder and I saw the rain. I called them upstairs and that is when the hail began to fall. And we see that the, some of the destruction caused by that great hailstorm as we were driving up to church this morning. God likens his voice to the rumbling terror of thunder. The arm of God here, have you an arm like God? The arm of God is always a symbol of God's saving power and his judgment. And his voice, his voice is a symbol of his creative abilities, that he spoke creation into existence, and it's a symbol of his authority, that what he says comes to be. He accomplishes all that he says. So in this verse, God is asking, Job, can you Save? Can you judge? Can you create? Can you command? Well, of course he can't. But God doesn't end there. He challenges Job next to step into the divine shoes and try to do what God does every single day. Verses 10 to 13, he says, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. God is challenging Job to do what God does every day. The thought of Job adorning himself like God clothing himself with majesty and dignity and glory and splendor is as preposterous as an ant trying to put on a king's royal robes. It can't be done. This isn't just a a child trying on his daddy's clothes. This is an earthly creature trying to put on heavenly glory. Job is no more able to adorn himself like God than he could wrap the sun around himself. 
Job can't dress like God and Job can't judge like God. If Job tried to bring about his vision of perfect justice in the world, it would not go well with him. If he tried to to bring down the proud or to take the wicked and tread them down, he would fail utterly and miserably because he would either become like them or he would be consumed by them. Job is utterly powerless to bring about the justice that he so desperately longs for. So who is he to criticize or question God? Job is not God's equal. If he were, then God says in verse 14, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. What we see here is that God's main concern is not answering Job. His main concern is humbling Job. Humbling him, bringing him back to an awareness of who he truly is in the light of who God truly is. Answering Job will only give him an inflated sense of his own wisdom, knowledge, and abilities. The only thing that will humble Job is a reminder of the infinite distance that separates God and man. That is what God continues to highlight as we move to our second point, God's power. This next section draws our attention to two mysterious creatures named Behemoth and Leviathan. These creatures are meant to inspire fear and wonder. They are massive in scope and frightening to behold. A number of us are going to Wonderland tomorrow by coincidence. And the biggest roller coasters there at Wonderland are named after these two beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. Who would have known that the planners of Wonderland are fans of the book of Job? The animals that God showed us in chapter 39, you remember them, the mountain goat, the ox, the ostrich, the eagles, and the hawks, those are like the rides in Kidsville, where little children giggle. These animals are the ones that make grown men scream. Behemoth is a land-dwelling creature. Verse 15 says that he eats grass like an ox. His hunger is insatiable. He is strong with a long tail like a tree trunk and with thick bones like tubes of bronze. He's an ancient creature described as the first of the works of God in verse 19 and he is unafraid. He is unchallenged and therefore he is unafraid. He could stand in the rushing currents of the Jordan River, open his mouth and not blink an eye. And most importantly, he is untamable. Verse 24 says, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The answer to that question, like all questions like it, is no. Job can't. And we can't, but God can. Leviathan is equally wild. Chapter 41 begins with questions about whether Leviathan can be tamed by man. You can't put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook. You won't domesticate him, tame him, or sell him at the fish market. If you lay your hands on him, you will enter a battle that you will not repeat, either because you're defeated so badly or you're dead. This beast has a back made of rows of shields that are airtight 
and impregnable. His face is full of terrible teeth set in a mouth that breathes fire. When he raises himself up, verse 25 says, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. And that is because all the weapons of man are completely useless against him. doesn't matter if you're using swords or spears or javelins or darts or clubs or stones. They all just bounce off of him. They, they tickle him. When, and when Leviathan swims, he leaves such a shining wake that, that verse 32 says that you would imagine that the deep is white-haired. That's how big he is and that's how long his shining wake is as he swims through the sea. These are terrifying beasts. But the question for us is, what are they? And what are we to think of them? And and how are they relevant to the overall message of the book of Job? Now there's considerable debate about the exact identity of these two beasts. Some say, especially those who are inclined to a young earth creationist view, that these are dinosaurs, but I'm not quite convinced by that. Others say that they are exaggerated poetic depictions of common animals. And the best that the scholars can come up with is that behemoth is the mighty hippopotamus. And Leviathan, leaving the shining wake behind him with a mouth full of teeth, breathing fire. He is the terrifying crocodile. The problem with that is that I just can't imagine God ending this epic book by saying, behold the hippo. (laughs) Consider the crocodile. I mean, if, if you've approached animals like this, especially in the wild, I have no doubt that you will approach them with appropriate trepidation. And you will not try to pet the crocodile on its snout because it will leave you without a hand. But they, these creatures do not inspire the kind of terror described in these chapters. The best interpretation I've come across is that these are mythological creatures. You could call them the storybook monsters of the time. There are narratives and legends and stories about how the world began and formed and and what terrors there are awaiting us out there in the wild. And behemoth and leviathan were common mythological creatures in the cosmological narratives of the time. We might compare them to the beasts of Greek mythology, like the hydra or the chimera or the griffin. They are fearsome, untamable beasts that cannot be challenged except by those with divine power. Whatever they may be, the most important point is actually not what they are, but what they point to. What they point to. They point us to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They point us to Satan himself. The book of of Job began with Satan God interacting with Satan, putting limits on what he could do against Job, and it ends with Satan and with a description of what God can do to this terrible being. These are physical embodiments of evil that really exists, an evil that is completely beyond our ability to control. 
This isn't the only place where physical beasts are used to illustrate spiritual powers. The book of Revelation is the best example. You know, with vaccines spreading, there's a lot of talk again about the mark of the beast. I think that's a ridiculous notion, by the way. But Revelation 13 speaks of two beasts. The first is a beast rising out of the sea, like Leviathan. And the second is a beast rising out of the earth, like Behemoth. Two beasts, reflecting the two beasts in the book of Job. Chapter 12 does the same thing when it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The strongest evidence that Leviathan in particular points us to the person and being of Satan is actually in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 1 It says, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. God doesn't do that with wild creatures that do not have moral capacities. He he does this because Leviathan symbolizes Satan himself. And so when we think about the devil, we must avoid the popular depictions of the devil in pop culture, where we just imagine a little red fellow with horns and a a little pitchfork standing on your shoulder and, and whispering in your ear. We are to imagine instead a fearsome, untamable beast like Behemoth or Leviathan consuming everything in its path. And as we try to imagine ourselves resisting these beasts, we must realize that we are utterly powerless to do anything against them. We can't marshal enough forces. We can't fashion the right weapons. We can't create the right strategies. We stand powerless before the awesome power of these magnificent beasts. And then we are to consider what God says in verses nine to 11. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. That is Leviathan. No one is so pierced that he dares to, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God's word to us here is that if we cannot stand before behemoth and Leviathan, then who are we to stand before God and accuse God of doing wrong? Behemoth and Leviathan and the spiritual forces of evil that they represent, they belong to God. Everything belongs to God, whether it be the mountain goats or the silly ostriches or the fire-breathing dragons in the sea, God says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. My friends, we may be powerless before the terrifying forces of evil, but God is not. God stands over and above those forces of evil as the sovereign king and ruler of all, unchallenged. 
In fact, his dominion over them is so complete and unquestioned that he describes himself in verse five as the one who plays with Leviathan as with a bird. The one who puts a leash on Leviathan so that his girls can play with it. Satan may be strong, but his strength is nothing compared to the strength of God. The infinite distance that exists between God and man is the same infinite distance that exists between God and the devil. God may have challengers to the throne, but he has no rivals. Everything under heaven and earth belongs to him and to him alone. So how do we respond to these truths? How do we respond to this majestic revelation of the authority and sovereign power of God? And this leads to our final point, God's servant. You remember that the book of Job began with Job functioning and living as God's exemplary servant. God said about Job, have you you looked at my servant Job? I have none like him in all the earth. And after he suffers, he responds in exemplary fashion when he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When, when his wife calls him to curse God and die, he says, will we receive good from God and not evil? He is an exemplary servant of God. In the inter immediate chapters, he struggled with that. He did, anyone would. Their, their faith would be challenged, their doubts would arise. He, he has struggled, but now at the end, at the end of this incredible book, Job resumes functioning as God's exemplary servant. After God's first speech, you remember how Job responded. He said, I am of small account and I lay my hand on my mouth. His, his response was silence. It was, it was to stop speaking and to start listening to God. That was a good start, but it, it wasn't enough because God doesn't just want Job to stop speaking what is wrong and what is false. He wants Job to start speaking what is true about God. And that is what Job does in these verses. Verse one says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This isn't just a statement about what God can do, what is within the realm of possibility. Job has known all along that God can do whatever he wants. There's been no question about God's power to accomplish whatever he desires. What Job is saying here is that he is finally acknowledging that God can do all things without being questioned or challenged in relation to his righteousness. God can do all things without compromising his justice or his wisdom and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Job continues in verse three where he begins by quoting God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was God speaking. This is Job's response. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job is showing God that he's, he's been listening. I, I remember, God, what you said. Who is this that hides counsel 
without knowledge. Who are you, Job? Who are you? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know who you're speaking to? And Job replies, I thought I did, but actually I do not. I, I, I thought I knew who you were. I thought I knew how the world worked, but I realize now that I've spoken of things beyond my understanding, my knowledge, and my wisdom, things that are too wonderful for me. Do you see, do you see what he said there? Things that are too wonderful, not just things that are too mysterious, not just things that are beyond his comprehension, but things that are too wonderful for him. Job isn't just throwing up his arms and saying, okay, God, you're smarter than me. I give up. I can never know the answers that I've been seeking. I guess you'll be God and I'll be man and and let's leave it at that. No, he says he bows down in worship at the wonderful mystery of God's sovereign plans. You remember David saying the same thing in Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The mystery of God ought to be marvelous to us. Our inability to answer all of the difficult questions about suffering should, yes, they should teach us about our limitations, but it should point us beyond that beyond ourselves and to God and to remind us and to show us that God is without limitations, that the answers that we so desperately seek and long for but can never obtain, God has them all. And that is wonderful to us. Lastly, Job quotes the Lord again in verse four. Before we reach one of the most famous verses in the entire book, He quotes the Lord saying, hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. This is Job's response. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally sees The Lord, not a physical manifestation of God with his physical eyes. Because remember, God is speaking to him not in a theophany where God appears in physical form, but out of the whirlwind. Job isn't saying, I've seen you because I've seen this whirlwind. Job is talking about the difference between hearing about Niagara Falls and seeing it for yourself. They're completely different experiences. If, if I were to tell you about some beautiful place I discovered in the Amazon, though of course I'd probably never go there because I would stick my hand in a crocodile's mouth or something silly. But if I were to tell you about a place like that and say, and say, well, it was like this and like that, and you say, that sounds amazing, I guarantee that you will not say, tell me again. Tell me again and again and again for hours upon hours and upon hours so I can just enjoy it again and again, your description, so I can hear it again. You, you will not say that. If you are truly amazed by this beautiful place I am describing, you're gonna book your ticket and go see it for yourself. And when you are there, that is when you will stand in awe for hours upon hours, beholding beauty with your own eyes. My friends, that is what Job is talking about. 
He had heard of the Lord by the hearing of the ear, but now his eye sees him. And the absolutely amazing thing about this is that Job finally saw the Lord through his ears, through what he heard. That God's awesome majesty was proclaimed to him. It wasn't the whirlwind of God that led Job to worship. It was God's words. It was God's words that led him to finally go from hearing about God to seeing the Lord for himself. And oh, this is, this is the wonderful thing about scripture because what was true then continues to be true now. God still reveals himself to us through his word. We are meant to go from hearing of the Lord to seeing him for ourselves when we read his word and when we hear his word. A word that culminates in the one the apostles called the word made flesh. The word made flesh. Jesus Christ himself. When we, when we hear the scriptures foretell the coming of the Messiah or we read about his perfect life or his substitutionary death on the cross or his triumphant resurrection on the third day. We are to turn. We are to turn from hearing of God to seeing God for ourselves. And when we do, the appropriate response is not to be entertained. It is not to be intrigued. It is to repent. It is to repent When we finally see the Lord, we respond like Isaiah did when he saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. When we finally see the Lord, we repent like Peter. When he saw Jesus perform that miracle with the fish bursting out of the nets in the Sea of Galilee. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When we see the Lord, we respond like Job, who encountered the God of behemoth and Leviathan and cried out, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the doors of the cathedral church in Wittenberg in 1517, It marked the beginning of the Reformation. It's a historical day that we commemorate every year. In fact, this year we'll be commemorating with a wedding. But do you know what the first thesis was? The first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It's not one thing that you do when you first become a Christian. It's not that thing that you might have to do if you live a prodigal life and you decide to return to the Lord. The entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance is nothing more than turning away from our sin and turning back to the Lord. We repent when we acknowledge that what we have been doing, how we've been living, the things that we've been saying, the things that we've been wanting, the things that we've been feeling, they've been wrong before the Lord. And we desire to submit ourselves under the authority of God once again and obey his commands. Repentance means 
Listen, repentance means that we stop trying to find our significance and our satisfaction in the created things of this world. And we redirect our hearts to God himself. My friends, we will never be done repenting because we will never be done sinning. Not in this life. The entire life of believers should be repentance because the entire life of believers continues to be polluted by sin. And so if, if you hear this, if you see Job responding with repentance and you say, what? What is he doing? Despising himself. The world tells me to exalt myself. Why is he despising himself? Why is he repenting? Why, why isn't he just responding by saying, oh God, yeah, that's nice. I'll take you. I'll, t- I'll take you along the side along with all my other idols. If that, if that is you, if you do not care about repentance from sin, then Job helps you understand why. It is because you have never truly seen the Lord. You haven't seen him. You may have heard of him by the ear. You may think that you believe in him, but you don't, not really. My friends, we must go from hearing of the Lord to seeing him. The Bible describes us in various ways. It calls it being born again, converted to Christ, receiving a spiritual revival in the soul. You need to repent and believe. Perhaps you grew up in the church, but have no idea what it means to live in daily repentance. Or perhaps you say that you're a Christian, but your life, the pattern of your day-to-day habits, completely contradicts your confession of faith. If that's you, then Job's message to you is this. You need to be transformed. You need to go from death to life. You need to go from hearing of the Lord to seeing the Lord. Because if you don't, you're not gonna last. Your faith will not endure. The fires of affliction and the temptations of the world will tear you apart and reveal that you truly never did know him. You need to see the Lord in his majesty and in his mercy and repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. And for those who have seen the Lord but are suffering, those who are going through a Job-like experience, this book has had many lessons for you. But the final one is this. You do not need more answers. You need more of God himself. You're not gonna find freedom from your suffering by dissecting your pain or deconstructing your childhood or going out into the world to find yourself. You're gonna find freedom by being lost in the wonder and majesty of God. And just like Job, you may find yourself seeing the Lord for the first time. Not despite your suffering, but because of your suffering. It's when we walk through the darkest valleys that the light above shines brightest. Your suffering is the scalpel that God is wielding with perfect precision to take away the scales from your eyes so that you could finally see the Lord. You can finally see that behemoth 
has been chained. You can see that Leviathan has been pierced. You can see that Satan is under the sovereign authority of God. And nothing will enter your life that God has not ordained. Every single struggle, every single trial, every ounce of suffering has been carefully measured and given to you in the kindness and mercy of God. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. My friends, the book of Job assures us that you never need to feel that very sharp and trying experience of being tempted to believe that God has lost control over your life. Everything under the whole heavens is his. We may not have all the answers, but in God's mercy, we have all of God himself. And so let us trust him. Let us see him with the eyes of faith. And let us bow down in worship. Let's pray. Father, we are each and every one of us more sinful than we realize and more sacred than we realize. We have broken your commands and your law in ways known to us and ways unknown to us. And we deserve your judgment. But as we sang earlier in this service, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And we pray for eyes to see that wonderful, glorious mystery that we might trust you whatever may come in our lives. Thank you for the book of Job and for the wonderful ending that still awaits us next Sunday. Will you plant us in us faith, hope, and love to the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.